0: Mark chapter eight, starting at verse one, uh, we have been working our way through Mark, and uh, we are now in this last chapter. This is a transitional chapter. Um, the book neatly divides right here in the middle, and uh, we'll talk about that division as we get to the as we get to the end. But uh, when last we left our heroes, that is the disciples, the bumbling disciples. Uh, They were, uh, they had just taken a long trek down from uh, Sidon and down the Hula Valley. You remember the Hula Valley? They came all the way down the Hula Valley and uh, they came into Decapolis. And there in Decapolis, they encountered a man uh, that was deaf and mute and Jesus heals him. And after that healing, um, they said he has done all things well. And now we transition into this next step, and we have the feeding of the 4,000. So I'd like someone to read for us the feeding of the 4,000, which is verses 1 through 13.
1: During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people who have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat if I send them home hungry they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance his disciples answered but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them how many loaves do you have Jesus asked seven they replied he told the crowd to sit down on the ground when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people and they did so They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also, and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Damanuthuth. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side.
0: Okay, great. All right, so let's compare the feeding miracles. We got the feeding of the 5,000, and we got the feeding of the 4,000. Some people say some some people um liberal scholars have who question the bible have said well this is obviously just a recounting of the same miracle there's too many um similar details and there are many similar details but there are also some very different strong differences and so we need to look at the similarities and the differences and talk it through and see what the lord has to show us in the comparison of these two stories so Um, How do they compare? What are some points of comparison between the two miracles?
2: Bread and fish.
0: Okay, same menu. (laughs) Yep. What else?
3: Large crowd.
0: Okay, we got two large crowds. Let's talk a little bit about the people. Who are the people in the first one? Jews. Jews. And who are the people in the second one? Probably
2: Gentiles, because they're the capitalists.
0: Right. Gentiles. Okay, what else do we have? How about Jesus' response when he sees the crowd? He had
4: compassion. Oh, yeah, and it was the disciples on the other one.
0: Jesus. When he sees the crowd in the feeding of the 5,000, it says, and Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In this second one, he said, Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd. Same response that Jesus has. Okay, what about the disciples? What is their response in the feeding of the 5,000?
2: Send them away. Send them away to get their own food. They didn't food. believe it
5: could happen.
0: Okay, so the disciples recognize the need. I say disciples. The disciples recognize the need. In the feeding of the 4,000, it's Jesus Jesus. Mm -hmm. that recognizes.
4: And one they sit on the grass and the other they sit on the ground.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, they both sit on the ground um, they sit together in groups so the seating is similar but we have more specific information remember here was they sat groups of 50
2: and 100
0: groups on the green grass here they sat on the ground
1: there's five lobes.
0: Okay. <clears throat> leftovers over here. You have twelve loaves, yeah. and leftovers over here. Seven, 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 seven baskets. Eight. Okay. How does how does how do they how does it end?
2: They were satisfied. They
4: were satisfied, and then on both of them, they immediately got in a boat.
0: Okay, good. Okay, so we see this incredible comparison between the two. We have some points of difference, right? Uh, the leftovers are certainly a difference, and the disciples' reaction. Is a difference. Um, and certainly the audience is a difference, right? <clears throat> okay? So we have um, two very interesting miracles. Uh, and th- they are similar enough that they have the same message, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Jesus comes to feed the 5,000. And we talked about how important this miracle is because it was the messianic miracle, right? Because God gives bread to his people just like Moses gave bread to the people. So the storehouse of bread in heaven has been opened up. This was something that clearly states the Messiah is here. They expected the Messiah to come, the green grass, our our shepherd is here, right? now jesus comes he's with gentiles and he reacts the same way saying that he is the good shepherd as well for the people of the world not just for the jews but the disciples have a different reaction don't they in the first one they recognize the need why because They they were beginning to understand Jesus' Messianic ministry, and they were beginning to understand their part in that ministry. But when it comes to the disciples, they don't recognize the need. They don't really care what happens to these guys, these Gentiles, right? Because there's no way they're part of the Messianic kingdom. Even after everything that they saw with the Syrophoenician woman, right? Right? And Jesus goes through this whole process. The miracle happens again in their hands as they distribute the food to all these people. But yet, they don't really get it.
2: Is there a strong connection with the Syrophoenician woman? Because she mentions even the dogs get the children's bread. Yeah. And the Gentiles would be considered dogs and right. they're getting the bread.
0: Right. And so the... the the disciples saw this as legitimate, right? Yeah. Yes, bread for the people of Israel. But these people don't deserve the bread, <laughs> mm-hmm. right?
3: Mm-hmm. It's kind of, um, of interesting too because Jesus is prepping them for this with those miracles yeah. you know, toward the Gentile people.
0: Jesus is preparing them to, for their ministry to the Gentiles. He's beginning to—he's conditioning them and helping them understand. You can imagine the original audience reading this, and they're Romans, and they're going, "Yes, <laughs> right. This is for us as well. He came for us as well." But
1: yes. The, the, the disciples had seen him not that long past feed five thousand. They say, well, "Where are we get good enough bread?"
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like, come on, guys, <laughs> right? Well, it gets worse. Let's read on, right? <laughs> it gets worse with that whole situation. So let's go on. So the feeding of the 4,000 is, I think, very, very significant. It's, it's clear uh, what Jesus is doing here. This is not some um, mistaken retelling of the same story. This is a second miracle that was intentionally similar because Jesus is teaching his disciples and making a statement about the nature of the kingdom of God and who it's available to. Everybody. And the disciples we're supposed to see react differently. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah, Joy. Well,
4: I had heard some people say, you know, they thought it was the same miracle. Right. And in reading this, it was like, bing, what? I've noticed this before. Jesus talks about both of them in the next thing we're going to read. Yeah. So there were two, obviously, when he talks about 5,000 and the
0: 4,000. Exactly. Look at your fish, right? They didn't look at the fish. Okay. Somebody read for us verses 14 through 21.
3: The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with him in the boat. Be careful. Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves to the 5,000, How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, Seven. And he said to them, Do you still not understand?
0: Okay. I love this passage. It is, I mean, it is crazy. So the disciples are in the boat, and they're, they're sailing across the lake, and they go, James did you bring the bread? He says I thought you were getting the the bread Thaddeus. What are you doing? You know and you see this back and forth right? We only have one loaf of bread. What are we going to do? There's 13 of us in the boat and Jesus is listening to this and he's going are you guys serious? I just fed all these people with a few loaves and we're 13 in a boat, and you're worried about bread? You're worried about starving to death? You know, where do you think bread comes from? Okay? Um, And so it's, it's comical if it wasn't so sad, right? So the disciples are back and forth about this, and Jesus then takes the opportunity to teach them something, and he says, Be careful, Jesus warned them, Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And they think, well, he's talking about this because we don't have any bread. (laughs) What does he mean when he says the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod?
1: Yeast is often related to sin.
0: Yeast is almost 100% related to sin as a symbol of sin in the Bible. Jesus, one time in Matthew, tells a parable about the kingdom of God is like yeast. But every other time, it's related to sin. Okay, um, where does that image of yeast and sin come from? The Exodus. Okay, I want you to think about. I want you to think about yeast. Um, I want you to think about this. That yeast for a couple of minutes. Um, the. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And so. Um, <laughs> Stop it. (laughs) So think about the people in Egypt. They were in Egypt for 430 years. How do you make bread with yeast, right? In the ancient world, you make your dough, right? You prepare your bread and you take a little piece of that dough, you separate it, you wrap it up in a little cloth, you set it aside and then you bake your bread. The next day, you mix up more flour and water. You take the little starter out of the cloth. You re- mix it in there. You let it the yeast infect the rest of the bread. And then once you have your dough nice and risen and ready to go, you take another piece of starter, wrap it up in the cloth, and you bake your bread. And you do this every single day, right? Do you ever make that friendship bread? Oh, yeah. And it, yeah, you get sick of it, and and you can't get re- you can't kill it, you can't give it away. Nobody wants it. You have no friends left after you start making this stuff, because it's like ah, right? And it's like invading your house and taking over your refrigerator. It's like crazy, right? And so finally, you have to kill it, and you feel guilty because you've killed it, right? Um, this is. This, is, this was the stuff of every day in the ancient world, okay? It keeps going. So this yeast is a perfect picture, not only of the sin, but of the sinful culture, the sinful system of Egypt. And so when God says to Moses, leave Egypt in haste, and don't, don't let your bread rise. In other words, allow the strain of bacteria that has been your yeast for 430 years to die because we're starting over. You see that? It's really quite a powerful picture. Because for 430 years, they had been infected by the culture, the mentality, the idolatry, the, all of that of, of Egypt. Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world, right? And it was enticing, it was enticing for them, right? They, Egypt, were the, they were the winners, right? They were the winners on the world stage. And we're just a little tiny slavery group being enslaved by the Egyptians, but you can't help but admire them, right? And God cuts that culture away. Jesus is saying, be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. They are the shepherds of Israel. And you are the new shepherds. Don't allow their yeast to infect you. Don't allow their leadership culture, which was self-centered, to affect you. And here you are on the boat arguing about bread for yourselves when you didn't want to feed the Gentiles that we just left. Right? See what Jesus is saying? It's powerful. And they're going, is it because we don't bread? They just missed the whole thing.
5: Yeast is also very symbolic of sin. Yes. That, uh, you know, it's hidden, it's inside you, and it works just like the yeast works in the dough.
0: You don't know how it does it, but it, it grows spreads and spreads.
5: Everything and,
0: and, uh, it's so pervasive.
5: The same thing. It's, it's Satan is inside us, and we have to... Them all the time. That's right,
0: that's right. Every day, I yep. Sin. At least a little bit.
5: <laughs> Some days more
0: than others. <laughs> Some days more than others. So, um, Jesus, Jesus gets frustrated with these guys. You know, you can understand. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asks them, "Why are you talking about having no bread?" Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Uh, last Friday, I was, I was thinking about this word, understand, and so I looked it up, and did a word study on it, and um, interestingly, this word only shows up one, two, three, four, five times in the Book of Mark, and it's all between chapters four and eight. And um, so I'm gonna pass this around. It's an example of a Greek-based word study that any one of you can do because um, you don't have to know Greek to do a Greek-based word study. You just need to know how to paint by the numbers, okay? Every Greek word, every Hebrew word is assigned a number um, by an old man named Strong. And he wrote a concordance called Strong's Concordance, which is about that thick, and it may be on the bookshelf in your house somewhere. And if you try to read it, you will go blind because it's all this itty bitty print. But what has happened is that all that stuff's been put online, and so you can go to something called the Blue Letter Bible. If you've ever accessed the blue, have you ever has anybody ever used the Blue Letter Bible? Okay. Go to blueletterbible.com, just Google Blue Letter Bible, and um, we may practice some of this next year when we we reconvene, but this is what I used in order to do this study, and what it does is it very easily does the work for you, looking up all these references using the Greek, uh, using Strong's concordance. So here is... um, here is my, my study. So I wrote this out for us uh, as an example of how to how to do this. So I looked it up in Blue Letter Bible, and uh, the Greek or the uh, Strong's number is forty nine twenty, um, and the word is suniymi. Right? That's all you need to know. Okay, got, got your Greek characters there. You can look at it all and you can say, wow, I actually know all about that. And then the word means uh, to put together. Okay? It, the idea is, is unity, bringing things together. And it, so that's what it means literally, but it means to comprehend, to understand by implication or to act piously, to consider, to understand, to be wise. Okay. Vines. Now, vines is included in the same entry uh, by Blue Letter Bible. And vines is an expository dictionary. And um, and it, the, he gives us a definition that says, means to understand, understood primarily to bring or set together. It is used metaphorically of perceiving, understanding, uniting. So to speak the perception with what is perceived. Okay. Usage in the book of Mark. So now what Blue Letter Bible does for you is it tells you, it shows you, it gives you the verse every time that word is used. The Greek word, not, not the English word, understand, but that Greek word, number 4920, is used in the New Testament. And so you can look at every single time that word appears. Well, I just looked at the times that it, well, actually, I actually looked at all of them, but I looked at the times specifically that it appeared in Mark because I was interested to see how Mark uses this word. And it's very interesting how he uses the word. It starts in Mark chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Um, in the parable, in the, and so I kind of told you what's going on, so you know. In the parables discourse, he's quoting Isaiah 6, and he told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Okay, so it, goes in, it, it works in conjunction with this word hearing. Remember we talked a lot about hearing. Um, listen, right, Jesus says, the sower went out to sow the seed. And then he ends it with, by saying, for him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right? So the word here is hearing. They may be hearing, but not understanding. The next time it's used is Mark six fifty-two. It says, for they had not understood about the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. Mark 7, 14, and again, Jesus called the crowd to him and he said, listen, there's that word listen to me, everyone, and understand. Okay, interesting, these words are used in conjunction. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them, but rather what comes out of a person. Then Mark 8, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Then he says it again in 21. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Okay. So then I looked through the other times that it's used in the New Testament. And the the use in Ephesians 5, I think, was helpful. It says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So it's used in opposition to the word foolish, right? So it carries the idea of being wise. Okay, so what, what are we saying here? I think... You know, to be a disciple, right, you begin to hear. Jesus says, for him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And I think the disciples are beginning to hear. They're hearing, but they haven't come to the next step, which is actually understanding, applying what they're hearing, that wisdom, right? And Jesus keeps asking them, do you still not understand? I know you're hearing. I know you have hearts to learn, to understand, but yet you're not quite there. It's not making sense to you yet. And so there's this kind of a two-stage process that we see.
2: It's perception, isn't it?
0: Right, yeah. And so I just wrote a little conclusion here. This word means to apply what you hear in the form of wisdom. The disciples have ears to hear. They're listening. But the next step is to understand, to use wisdom to apply what Jesus is saying. They're not there yet. This is understanding. uh, It is this understanding that results in repentance and forgiveness. That's what we saw in Mark. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. And otherwise you might turn and be forgiven. Turn is repentance, right? It, It has not all come together, right? Which is part of the definition for the disciples yet. This seems to frustrate Jesus, but, that's supposed to be but, not be, but he doesn't give up on them, okay? So this is an example of how to do a Greek-based word study, just to think a little more deeply about how a word is used in, in the book.
3: Well, you know, in this Mark 8, 17, he doesn't say here, he says see. Yeah, I mean, which is a little different take on it. And
0: isn't it interesting that the last two miracles we have in this first section are hearing and seeing? Mm Do you think that's by accident? No. All right. So let's go on, because we've now got to go to math class. Um, Jesus says in verse 18... Do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you have ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves of the 5, 000, for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They said 12. And when I broke the seven loaves of the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did I pick up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Okay. Do we get it? Do we understand? Yeah. Well, maybe not. Let's talk about it.
2: Twelve, the Jewish. Yeah, year.
0: let's talk about it.
2: 12 tribes. Complete. Well,
1: I, I thought of something different. In the, in the first one, you, you specifically hear a mention of a little boy. And I wonder, why is it a boy? Why isn't it the mother, the cook, the, the father, or whatever, it's a little boy. Maybe he's an orphan or whatever and there's 12 baskets left over. The next one, it just says seven loaves. Was that seven different people? And, uh, and, and So there's this different, he specifically asked, how much did you get as a result? 12 on one, seven in on the other. Uh, was that the return, this little boy gave what he had and he got a bounteous reward for giving this little bit, this five loaves and a couple of fish. This other is maybe seven different people and they gave their loaf of bread. And so they got back a whole basket for giving this little.
0: That'll preach. I don't know. Um, but, but Luke is the one who gives us the, 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 the amplification of the little boy. We don't get that in Mark. Okay, so Mark just tells us that they had five loaves and two fish, right? And um, we have 12 leftover baskets of fragments, and we have seven leftover baskets of fragments. Um, So let's talk about numbers. What do numbers symbolize? Peggy was mentioning 12 symbolizes what? The 12 tribes. The 12 tribes. So it is the number of the Jews, right? Right. The 12 tribes. Now... It's interesting because this is a, the number of completeness for the Jews. Um, I love the story of Elijah up on Mount Carmel, right? You remember the story of Elijah up on Mount Carmel mm-hmm. and, the, and the, the prophets of Baal, yeah. Yeah. right? And they're having the big contest, the big showdown. And in the midst of that showdown, um, it's time to rebuild the altar, right? And he goes and he takes 12 stones and he piles them up and he makes the altar out of 12 stones. He, by this time, the kingdom is divided. He could have built it out of 10 stones. Mm-hmm. But even in the divided kingdom, the complete number of Israel is 12. Okay, So this is the number of completeness of Israel. Um, the, 12, the 12 tribes. Okay, So how about the number 7? Well,
5: that's a perfect number.
0: Why is it perfect? Seven well, it's completeness. Why? Creation, okay? According to the Bible, it's the number of the world, right? It's the number of creation. And so here we have 12 and 7. This is Jews. This is Gentiles, the world, right? And so 12 baskets full of fragments and 7 basketfuls of fragments equals the kingdom. This is what the kingdom looks like, guys. The kingdom doesn't, the kingdom isn't made up of all the Jews. You see, that's where you're wrong. You've been thinking that the Messiah comes and all the nation of Israel, all of the Jews will be a part of it. They're not. There's going to be a complete number of fragments. A complete number that God will call from among the Jews. And then there will be a complete number that God will call from among the Gentiles. And that is what the kingdom looks like. That is the composition of the kingdom. Now there's another element here, a linguistic element. Jesus uses two separate words, two different Greek words for basket in this passage. This word is basket. Is kofinos and this word is spiros. Kofinos is a little Jewish basket and spiros is a big Greek basket. So we have you know in different cultures they use different baskets okay Baskets have always been a great identifier of cultures. You go to, you know, any, visit any Indian, you know, different Native American culture, you'll see a different basket design. That's the way we identify different tribes and cultures is by their baskets. Well, this was true in the ancient world as well. Jews used a little basket called a kofinos, and Gentiles, the Greeks in this region over on the other side of the, of the Sea of Galilee, used a big basket called a spurus. Okay? And Jesus intentionally uses the different words here. So he's talking about how many Jewish baskets did you pick up? Twelve. How many Greek baskets did you pick up? Seven. Do you get it yet? Do you understand yet? Is it coming together for you? Right? Okay, see what Jesus is saying? It's pretty amazing, isn't it?
4: So was it rehab? They've had the big basket and lowered
0: yeah, Rahab lowered the spies in a basket. Paul was put in a basket. A Moses was put in a basket. We've got several basket cases in the Bible. Well, I don't know. I mean, again, different cultures have different kinds of baskets, so it could have been there could be. And you know, in the ancient world, baskets are their Tupperware, right? I mean, they're that's the way they carry everything. Right? It's the easiest way to make a, something to carry things in. And so you've got lots of different kinds of baskets. That's why you know, we use the same English word, because a basket's a basket. Big deal, right? But in the ancient world, you know, it's like the Eskimo word for snow. They have a lot of words for snow, because they have lots of snow, right? And it's very important to their culture. And in the same way, in the ancient world, different kinds of baskets for different uses that reflected different cultures, OK? So, that's what we have going on. Good questions. All right. So, now let's move on because we don't have much time and we've got to finish this deal. Okay? Somebody uh, read for us the story of the blind man, uh,
5: verse 22 through 26. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him. Out of the village and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on them he asked do you see anything and he looked up and said I see people but they look like trees walking mm-hmm. and then Jesus laid his hands on the eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly and he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village.
0: Okay, what is different about this miracle? It takes two touches. Okay, that's weird. What did, was Jesus low on batteries at that point? Was he running low on power, spiritual power? Needed to gin some more up? I mean, it's a, it's a strange detail. And so as we read it, we have to file that away and say, why? Why does that happen? Okay? Um, I want to come back to it because it's, I think it's very significant. And I want to get a little bit, I want to talk about Peter's confession and then bring it together. So Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is in the north. You go back up the Hula Valley. So Jesus goes back up the Hula Valley, and he goes up to Mount Hermon. And right at the base of Mount Hermon is where Caesarea Philippi is. It's a very Greek city. All right? And... um, uh, Matthew gives us a lot more detail. We'd talk more about the history of Philippi if we were doing Matthew right now, but we're not. We're doing Mark, so we'll just leave it at that for now because we're almost out of time. Um, who do people say that I am? As they're walking on the way, and some say John the Baptist, raised from the dead, and others say Elijah, and still others say one of the prophets. Um, but then Jesus asks, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Um, and finally, Peter says, You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You're the guy. You're the one. And Jesus says, finally. <laughs> it only took you eight chapters to get here. <laughs> what is the matter with you people, right? This has been a long, slow process. But they finally got it, that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone Yet. It's
4: more than eight chapters because Mark doesn't start
0: with birth. (laughs) Yeah, right. I'm just saying in Mark. Um, And so then Jesus, now listen to this transition. Verse 31. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. So, do you notice a change here? <coughs> a transition? Oh yeah. Up until this point, Jesus has never said anything about his death. He's never said anything about going to Jerusalem. He's never said anything about this being rejected by the chief priests and the teachers of the law in Jerusalem. Or being killed, certainly. Right? Mm-hmm. And he's speaking very clearly, very plainly to them. Okay, what do we have going on?
2: It's like it builds to a climax, and they go, Peter goes, Yes, yes, you're the Messiah. We see it now, and then all of a sudden yeah. there's that downhill plunge.
0: Right. So let's take a look. We've got Mark 1 through 8, and then we have Mark 9 through 16. The book divides right here. Up until now, it's been, the focus has been the identity of Jesus. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And they marveled at him. Who can this be? Who is this man with what authority he speaks? Okay? Who is Jesus? That's the question, right? Right? What is his identity? We come to the climax, the end. Peter finally says, You are the Christ. Right? You're the one. His identity has finally been revealed. So that is the focus of the first eight chapters of the book. Immediately, Jesus now switches from his identity to his mission. Right? Jesus is now going to talk about I've come to suffer to die and to rise again. Okay? So the the focus of the book now changes. Okay? So there's two halves, two different themes. Okay, we've got to the first one. We've reached the first climax. And now we're going to get into the second half of it, which is why did Jesus come?
3: Mm.
0: All right, now, with that in mind, I want to go back to our blind man. We have... We have first touch and second touch. After the first touch, what do they say? What does the blind man say? He
2: sees objects, but they're not clear.
0: And I think this is where the disciples are. I think the disciples are at one touch. Mm -hmm. They are just about to see clear. They're going to see you're the Messiah. The problem is they don't know what the Messiah is. They still think he is going to sit on a throne in the temple in Jerusalem and defeat the Romans and all of this picture that they had in their mind about what the disciples were supposed to be. Now Jesus begins to focus on what is the Messiah really supposed to do? And that is unclear because Peter, as soon as Jesus says this, what does Peter say? He rebukes him. He says, what are you talking about? he says, what are you talking about? You're this guy. You can't do that. I know what the Christ is supposed to do, what the Messiah is supposed to do. And Jesus says, you don't know squat. You still can't figure out the loaves. Right. And so Jesus has to rebuke him. Okay, So I think that this, this miracle, the two-touch miracle, is an illustration for the disciples about where they are in their understanding.
2: They have no understanding.
0: They, they hear, but, but they, they still don't, don't understand. understand right? Mm-hmm. So they're in this two-part process. process. They have ears to hear. They're getting there, but they're still not there. They still don't get it. Okay. Mm-hmm. See how all this fits together? Mm-hmm. You see how incredibly amazingly composed this book is? You know, we think all oh, it's just a random assortment of fables that have been, you know, compiled about Jesus' life. No. Mm-hmm. This was a very carefully composed book teaching us about Jesus, about the disciples, about our process of understanding.
2: Dan, it's a tapestry woven with specific threads. And when you get the whole picture and look back, you see it clearly. Right. Because if you get up close to something, some types of artwork or tapestries or things, you can't see the picture because all you can see are the colored threads. But you get back and you get some perspective and you go, aha, now I see the picture.
0: But the point is you have to keep asking the question. When you come to these things, like this two-touch miracle, you're saying, what is going on here? This does not fit the pattern. There must be a reason. What is the reason? What's going on in the broader passage? Why would Mark include this miracle here? Why does he choose this miracle to tell here? And when I say Mark, I really mean Peter, because this is all a composition of Peter's sermons. Peter, I can imagine Peter telling these stories together and then Jesus healed this blind man and he touched him twice and we didn't understand why but then we realized because Jesus revealed, we understood who he was, that he was the Messiah but we didn't understand what the Messiah was supposed to do and so we still kept thinking in the wrong direction right? It it
5: takes a long time for us humans you know, I've been hearing these stories and sermons Sunday school since I was, I don't know, three or four years old, <laughs> 80 some odd years later. It's finally starting to come together. Right. But I'm not near as bright as the disciples were, but, <laughs> but even as bright as they were, it took them a long time to get it all figured out. Yeah.
0: Right, and it took the Holy Spirit, and it took careful thinking. Right, this is this is where meditation comes in. We talk about meditation, right? You know, what does it mean to meditate on God's word? Um, it means to look at it, and look at it, and look at it, turn it over, and ask the questions of the text. What? I don't understand that. Why? Why does Jesus say this? Why? why? What's he saying here about the seven and the twelve? What does that mean? What is what were this disciples supposed to understand? Because I'm not getting it either, right? <laughs> and s- pretty soon we, it starts but we've got to ask the questions. we've got to slow down. and we've got to ask the questions. Sometimes we're just trying to get we're trying to keep that one year. Rhythm and get through the Bible again, right? Got to keep going. And there's nothing wrong with seeing the big picture. There's value in seeing the big picture. But we've got to slow down too, and we've got to dig into the details. Try to understand. Okay, isn't that powerful? It's exciting stuff. Um, Jesus then talks, he calls the crowds together. And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. But whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet to forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Listen to the change in tone. Jesus is talking about picking up your cross and following me. He's talking about um, when the Son of Man comes in, in glory with his Father and all of the holy angels. I mean, this is... This is some pretty direct Messiah language that he's now speaking to the crowd. Before, he was speaking much more cryptically, right?
4: Well, and is this the first time he mentions cross? Because he just before just said, I'm going to die. Yep.
0: Yes. And so, see this change? Mm -hmm. This wasn't happening in the first eight chapters. This is now happening. Okay, Jesus is, well, it's in chapter eight, but it's still going there. You see where where the shift happens. (laughs) okay now interestingly we come to verse 9 chapter 9 verse 1 and it says and he said to them truly I tell you some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power strange thing to say some of you are not going to die before you see the kingdom come with power what does he mean what's he talking about is he talking about Pentecost The very next thing we see is the transfiguration. Three of them are going to see the transfiguration. Um, Is he talking about his return? And the end of the age. Right? That's, I think, what the disciples thought. That they would... It was within their generation. By the end of their generation that Jesus would return and the kingdom kingdom would come and the age would end.
4: So is that why the Jews don't believe that he was
0: who he was? Well, it's... well, no, no, because they, don't, they didn't believe any of this. Um, it's why the disciples lived with this expectation that Jesus was, his return was imminent, okay? And I think that's intentional because time is short and God wants us to be motivated, right? Because we don't know when Jesus is coming back. So we must live like he's going to come back at any moment, right? And Jesus seems to leave this vague challenge out there. Um, for them so we'll talk more about that when we come back together in January